Bromley Buzz podcast is on Zoom today, and we're with uh, Darren Wheel in June PR, that's myself, uh, Sarah Marsh Collins, um, another of the Babel Monkey team, uh, and uh, Bob Stewart, MP for Beckenham. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Bob. Uh, th thank you so much, Darren. Yeah, um, you are a, a third MP. We've spoken to um, Gareth Bacon and we've spoken to Sir Bob Neal. One of the things we discovered while we were talking to them is that each person has their own uh, things that they're particularly interested in. So Gareth, it's sport. Um, Bob, it was culture and the arts. Um, do you have a particular uh, thing that um, you get quite excited about? Yeah, well, I, I suppose with my background, having been a soldier for 28 years, it's defence and foreign affairs particularly. But it, it's also um, uh, people, I also take a, quite a lot of interest in um, people that are down and out, uh, people that are, are actually have had a raw deal in life. Um, of course, that comes from the soldiers too, because a lot of soldiers tend to, you know, end up um, on the streets. And I've been involved with that a little bit um, in, in my life since I left the army. Yeah, the, the needs of um, ex-servicemen, what with things like post-traumatic stress disorder for one thing, and also in some cases, actually some employers don't like hiring servicemen or so the story goes. So I can understand why that might be a problem. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, only last weekend I went to the, a West Country hospital to see one of my old soldiers who I've just discovered was in there very ill, very ill with PTSD, um, apparently. So I, I, I went to see him just to make sure that he was being looked after, which he was indeed. I actually know a, a, a recruiter who specialises in help. He's ex, uh, ex army, and he's uh, he specialises in helping ex servicemen um, find work on city street uh, because he recognises obviously how much that can be a challenge because a lot of employers don't appreciate that uh, uh, servicemen have um, transferable skills. They just sort of see that they've done this. Oh well, you were a soldier, therefore you can't do anything else. When actually the reality is really quite different. Well, the thing, um, the thing, the services give you is determination to see things through, discipline, to actually be there on time. And these are things that sometimes people, all they see is the bad side of servicemen. When you know, a few paras break up a bar in, you know, Colchester or something, and they automatically trans transfer that to the whole of the army when the whole of the army is actually just like everyone else in society. We reflect society. Um, some of us are very good and some of us can be a bit naughty sometimes. Um, and, um, you know, they're, they're not as rough as some public perception uh, implies they are. Um, in fact, you know, some soldiers are incredibly gentle. Um, take the fact that when I was in Bosnia, um, when I was talking to my soldiers, and this was 1992, 93, um, and they'd heard that 
the Ministry of Defence was probably going to withdraw us. And, you know, it was almost universal. The men said to me, if you think, sir, that we're going to be able to withdraw from this place where so many people need us to stay, to look after them, you've got another thing coming. And I thought, my God, I might have a mutiny on my hands if I do have to withdraw, because I totally agree with them. Uh, you know, it's it's difficult, but they, they and you know, they always, um, the military always look after children um, uh, and girls. Uh, one, of, one of the interpreters I hired, well, I didn't personally hire her, but she was hired by the quartermaster, told me, and she was 17 years old when she was found in Sarajevo, having lost her parents. And she was then with the, the army for four years, British army. And she told me two things, which I think is symptomatic and is an example of what I mean. And I, I saw her last summer in Sarajevo and had dinner with her. She's now a very successful businesswoman with family and, and wonderful girls. Um, she told me that after four years working for the British Army, never ever once in that time was any soldier in any way inappropriate with her. I thought that was amazing because mm -hmm. she was very pretty and she still is. And the second thing she said, which I thought was just as sweet, is when, when she left the British Army's employment, she was employed by the British Army from 1992 to 1996, uh, she had to lug two suitcases. The two suitcases were full of cosmetics, which the soldiers, having gone back on R&R, brought her as a present when they returned, because she couldn't get things like lipsticks, you know, makeup, you know, even clothing. And you know, she actually said, you know, things they were really gentle and, and treated her as a sister things like sanitary towels that they bought that for her and I just thought god you know people have got a really wrong idea sometimes of the army um in in four years lots of different battalions going through and I just thought wow that's an impressive story I wish people would hear more of that well, they're going to hear it as a result of this yeah yeah um we interviewed uh, an army officer uh, as part of the Bromley Buzz. Uh, yeah. This is um, Warrant Officer Mark Kane of the 106 Royal Artillery, who are based in Grove Park. Have you bumped into them at all yet? Yeah, yeah. Of course, Grove Park is a is a reserve army place. It's I've been there a couple of times. Um, they're reserve army, so they're not regulars. They're, they're people that work in the community and do a bit of part-time soldiering. Uh, but they're very, very valuable to the armed forces uh, and particularly the army. And Grove Park is a quite a big establishment. I rather think it's too big for all the for the small number of people that are there. But uh, nonetheless, I'm one person that says don't don't flog off army estate. You never know when you might need it. <laughs> After all, we're in that sort of situation at the moment with Ukraine, aren't we? This is true. Um... And what's going yeah. on in Ukraine must be uh, must be kind of resonating with you rather at the moment. Utterly and completely. Um, you know, all the all the stuff, what do we do? What humanitarian stuff um, can we do? How do we get supplies through? Um, you know, my very good friend, 
Adam Holloway, MP for Gravesham, went there uh, this week and did a bit of reporting actually, because he was a ITN reporter. And he said um, to me, I spoke to him uh, since he's been back. He said, firstly, they need standard stuff, anti-aircraft and anti-tank missiles. They desperately need that. But the other thing he said um, was that the Ukrainian people who he talked to did not blame the Russians. They blamed Mr. Putin and the government. And of course, their fellow Slavs as such. Uh, and the idea to them, the idea that Russians would come in and kill them is utterly abhorrent. So they really don't understand what the hell's going on. And you see that in the way the, the way Ukrainians are, are talking on what we see of them talking to Russian soldiers. The Russian soldiers are hugely embarrassed. They don't really know what they're doing there. And, uh, you know, old ladies are going up to Russian soldiers saying, what are you doing in my country? Why are you here? What are you doing? Why are you doing this to us? Um, we're, we're like you. What are you doing? You know, we're just normal people and, and the soldiers often have got no answer. Um, they, they are flabbergasted themselves. Uh, it seems that the Russian army arriving in Ukraine, so many of them are conscripts and so many of them don't even realize uh, what they're there for. And I, I suspect actually the government in Moscow is, is wondering what the hell it's gonna do, assuming it wins. What then the real problems start. You've got 44 million Ukrainians who actually don't want you there. I mean, it is going to be a very difficult problem. I mean, it would be so wonderful if there was a ceasefire uh, and the killing was to stop, always the first thing that matters. And then somehow politics tries to sort it out. But uh, I never thought Mr. Putin would go beyond the, the areas that, where the so-called little green men were operating, which is Donetsk uh, and Luhansk. It's called the Donbass area of Eastern Ukraine. I thought they'd stop there if he went, if he came in. And of course they already hold the Crimea. I understand why they hold the Crimea. The Russian Black Sea fleets there. You know, they never thought for a moment the Crimea wouldn't be part of, you know, part of the Soviet Union in, in the days they put the Black Sea fleet there. But, um, and I thought that would, he wouldn't be silly enough to go beyond that. And that might be a sort of chunk that in the end, much to our chagrin, and the West might have to accept, the Ukrainians will never accept it, but the West might have to agree, agree that it happened. I don't know, uh, now with what's happened coming into, you know, attacking Kiev and other cities, it seems to me astonishing. And I think there will be a, a reaction among Russian people who are not quite as subdued as they were in the past. They now actually have seen, they want to have, uh, they want to have links to the West. They want to be able to travel here. You want to be able to come on holiday here. They're not all oligarchs. We seem to have more oligarchs in London than anywhere else in the world. I mean, uh, an oligarch, you remember that advert you used to see uh, with Maureen Lippmann about her 
uh, things uh, studying, studying uh, you know, an ology. An ology, you know, right? An ology. And I always think when you hear the word oligarch, I think they're more in nephew or something, studying something really smart, like an ology at university. Um, but an oligarch, I mean, and the other thing is we've got to be very careful that we don't um, condemn all Russians. The vast number of Russians living here, we, you know, are actually very decent people, very normal, and just like us. Don't chuck out the Russians like that. Uh, you know, we, you know, uh, the oligarchs may well have stolen the money. I personally think no one can get that rich that quickly without it being utterly corrupt. Uh, so, you know, I mean, how does Mr. Mr. Abramovich get so much money so quickly? Uh, I do actually think that three luxury yachts is actually taking the pee, really. <laughs> that's a little over the top, eh? You know, I mean, I just, you know, if that's the case, I couldn't believe anyone would want three luxury yachts. Um, I mean, I don't know, but uh, it's, it's beyond me. But these people that seem to have got rich very, very quickly, it's absolutely right that, that we sort it out. Um, I'm a conservative. People say the conservatives have been slow about sorting this out. Um, yeah, I think they probably have. Uh, the government has always been slow about sorting it out. But my contacts with uh, secretaries of state imply they're, they're only sort of answer to me is rather sort of um, obscure. You know, Bob, it's not quite as easy as you think. So there's something, something that they can't say or they won't say or they, you know, something, because it is does seem easy to me. Confiscate their assets, don't allow them to travel into the country. That seems easy. But it isn't clearly as easy as that. And I'm thinking, you know, in this case, I'm thinking of from the point of view of the public, it does seem quite easy. Do it, do it, do it. Why are you, why are you politicians not doing it? And uh, I'm saying, you know, as a politician, why are we politicians not doing it? And the government's saying, well, not as easy as, as it looks. It, it is much more difficult. And it requires, you know, the, the other slight key is, when we act, we've got to ensure that we can't actually be, you know, have to reverse it in a week or so's time. So they've got to be absolutely sure. And so there we are. But, you know, my cry as a politician to the government, because I'm obviously a backbencher, all three Conservative MPs in Bromley, and I do actually remind you that there is a, you know, three, three, three wards of Bromley, Borough are actually run by the most very nice Labour MP, who I like a great deal personally. And I, both her and her husband, John, are very good friends of mine. Um, and I always invite them to my garden party in my house. When we, people say to me, well, uh, this is a Conservative garden party, isn't it? <laughs> I say, no, actually, it's not. It's my garden party. Uh, I happen to invite a lot of Conservative people, but I also 
happy to invite my friends, the Labour MP, Jim Dow, the last one, the West Lewisham Penge and Janet, um, his wife, um, both of whom were MPs, are very good friends of mine. Even though Jim stopped being an MP, I'm still very much in contact with him. And we have lunch together, both, you know, all the time. So there's, you know, one of the things that the public don't seem to think, they just think, seem to think we hate the opposition. No, we don't. That's politics. Um, friendship is something, another matter. Um, as long as politics doesn't overwhelm friendship and become so dominating that, uh, you know, you, you start to hate someone. There's been a bit of that, frankly, uh, mainly in the Labour Party, but we've got elements of that in the Conservative Party who are nuts uh, too. So, you know, you know, you know, if there's mud, make sure you spread it around because uh, <laughs> no one is clean uh, on this matter. Anyway, I've seemed to be talking. You haven't asked me anything. I haven't felt the need for a while, actually. Uh, and yeah, so you're alluding there to Ellie Reeves, uh, MP for Lewisham yeah. West and Penge, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Uh, you know, she will be um, interviewed by us fairly soon, I think. As well. Good, excellent. She, you'll find she's an extremely decent person and, and friend of mine. She might well, even say know. that. She might even say that when you ask her. We'll you like tell, Stuart, we'll tell her about it. I can't stand him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was going to ask you, um, we were invited by Councillor Kim Botting uh, to go to the Orpington Royal British Legion and to report on the uh, Remembrance Day uh, commemoration uh, last year. Mm. Uh, you being an ex-soldier yourself, I wanted to ask you what Remembrance Day means to you, and it must be more poignant with the Ukraine thing we've been talking about. Yeah, well, firstly, my regiment normally walks past the Cenotaph. Until I was an MP, I used to do that religiously every year, but I can't. You know, on Remembrance Day at 11 o'clock, I'm the Member of Parliament for Beckenham, and I have to be at the Beckenham War Memorial, period. End of. It's a duty. What does it mean for me? Well, it means it reminds me of all the men I've lost. And I've lost over 10 people killed beside me or with me on operations, particularly if Remembrance Day reminds me of the 6th of December 1982, where six of my men were killed in the Ballykelly bomb and 35 were wounded. And I was the instant commander and I had to one you know, command the incident, fully aware that these people were, the majority of the people wounded or killed were my men. It was extremely difficult. And it was particularly difficult because the first person I met when I went into the bomb site, which was in total darkness with a flashlight within five minutes of it happening, was a girl lying on the deck who had lost two legs and an arm. And she was so, uh, thank God, she obviously was in so total shock, she had no pain. And she was speaking and I spoke to her and said to her, do you, are you all right? You know, something <laughs> you know, stupid like that. Uh, 
And she said, I think so. She was lying in there. Her boyfriend had rushed off. He said, are you a doctor? He thought I was a doctor because I was wearing a barber coat. It was actually, I just slung on a coat because I'd rushed from my house. And she said to me, uh, what's happened? I said, there's been a bomb. She said, oh, am I hurt? And I said, yeah, you are very, you hurt a lot. Very badly hurt, she said. I said, yes, you are very badly hurt. Well, of course, it was obvious because there was blood going everywhere, you know. Awful 18-year-old kid, uh, girl. Well, she said, am I going to die? And I said, I think so. So she said, am I going to die now? And I said, yes. She said, will you hold me? So I held her and she died in 30 seconds. But you, you can imagine the impact on, uh, I was 32 years old at the time. I was a soldier, but then I, I wept um, and I was the incident commander. You know, that was just one, you know, one of the people that actually uh, I had to deal with. Five girls were killed in this pub um, none of them were soldiers, of course. Uh, they were just normal girls in a what was called a white area uh, where it wasn't meant to be a terrorist threat. And, uh, you know, it, it was traumatic. So I'm remembering her. I don't just remember the soldiers, the 10 soldiers or more. You know, Lance Corporal Wayne Edwards, who was shot through the cheek by escort driver in, in Bosnia, was killed you know, in February. 1993, uh, he wouldn't have known anything about it, but you know, I thought he was alive when I pulled him out of the vehicle, but of course he wasn't. Um, but I remember the soldiers, but I also remember the civilians uh, as well. And on the memorial we put up at Ballykelly in Northern Ireland, it's the one military memorial that's actually got civilians on it in the world. So it's got our soldiers and civilians on it, mixed. And I, I'm really pleased And I, I, every year when I go to the Beckenham Memorial, I look at, on the side of it, there's over 300 civilians on that memorial. You remember, this isn't a military memorial, this is a war memorial. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm a bit sniffy because I'm cold. Uh, but the... Uh, and I always remember them too. And, you know, you've got to think in, in Beckenham, Beckenham Green was created by, you know, two B1s, doodlebugs, I think, landing and destroyed the Beckenham, Beckenham Junction Hotel. The green there is, was made by, the, by a bomb site. If you actually go on Google Earth and get the right one, you can actually see from the skies the outline of the building. In, in on the green in Beckenham, um, and uh, you know that green was made by German bombs, as was Little Car Park in Beckenham, and of course Sir Mary's Shortlands was destroyed by a, a, a doodlebug, uh, and you know you've got to look at the Crooked Billet, uh, now the Harvester Inn in South Bro Lane. Uh, that, that was destroyed. We, this part of the world, Bromley, 
was obviously a, a favored sort of bombing area for Mr. Hitler, because uh, we didn't half lose a, a lot of people. Uh, a lot of civilians were killed here, you know, uh, uh, a lot of women and children and old men, but people just going about their normal lives because we were on the sort of direct route in towards London. And, uh, you know, all around, there's a, there's a wonderful map, well, not a wonderful map, but an ac accurate map of all the, um, the sort of bomb, bomb sites. So we're sort of bomb alley here, you know, let's just hope that never happens again. But uh, Bromley was certainly, you know, our previous people that lived here, uh, actually, uh, they suffered quite severely during the war, though they weren't directly involved. So tell me, how did you go from uh, being a military officer to being an MP? which you've been in Beckenham since 2010. Yeah, that's true. Well, I left the army in 1996. I thought my time was up. I was, what, 45? I was a full colonel. I'd, I'd done quite a lot. I'd been involved in a lot of operations. And I felt I'd offended enough senior officers to, uh, to realise that... Um, I wouldn't probably go right to the top. Uh, in fact, the military secretary told me as much. So I thought, well, I don't want to stay in the army and become bitter, you know, you know, by the age of 55, bitter. I love the army. Uh, and, you know, I'm my own worst enemy. Uh, you know, what I've done, I take responsibility for. So telling generals to get lost in Bosnia was not perhaps when, when they told me to do something which I disagreed with, um, was not actually very good politics, military politics. I left the army, I went into business for a while. I worked in public affairs, God help me. Um, and then I ran a company for um, uh, several years as well. And then I became consultant on my own, but all the time, I was never political, you know, I would, I was always a Tory. I can't remember ever not having voted Conservative. In fact, I know I didn't. Sometimes when I was abroad, I didn't vote. The military tend to be like that because of course the military are honor bound to serve whatever government is in power, quite rightly. So, um, but I did have good friends like Sir Geoffrey Patty, was vice chairman of the Conservative Party and uh, Caroline Flynn McLeod, who was a friend I'd had from NATO days when I was a Lieutenant Colonel at NATO, 1988. And they were telling me all the time, you should be an MP. And eventually in 2009, uh, they convinced me when I was having a drink with them, I think it was in the speaker's pub in, in Westminster, they said, look, you, you ought to be a Tory MP. And I said, well, you know, they're not sure it's my game. Anyway, they dragged me back to their office. They made me sign a form and they recommended me. Uh, and Jeffrey being vice chairman of the party, that's pretty powerful. I then had to go through a selection course 
which I thought would be, to be honest, Darren, you know, piece of cake. Wrong, wrong. I mean, we, we had a sort of interview. First interview was, what's most embarrassed you in your life? It's not like, come in, Bob, sit down. Nice to see you, you know, tell us about yourself, you know, that sort of thing. It was the first, what's most embarrassed you in life? Of course, it was divorce. I've been divorced. I didn't, you know, I found that acutely painful. And I was always thinking of my ex-wife, you know, and I thought, um, you're a sort of a shit to, to have done that, you know, to get divorced. And, and my mother didn't help because she, she told me that too. <laughs> but the, uh, you know, she said, you're married for life, Robert, you know, that sort of thing. So it was pretty, pretty hard. Um, and then you, you had to write two, uh, two essays in 50 minutes. You know, quite, uh, you know, one of the essays inevitably, why do you want to be an MP? Yuck, you know. Um, and then you had to chair a meeting. Well, there were four of you. All of you had a slightly different view and you had to get a consensus and, and things like that. Uh, what else would be there? Uh, yeah, you had to answer an exam paper of about 10 questions, including writing a draft letter to the Times. All these things were marked. And of course, all the time you were being observed. Uh, and I thought when I was walking, I met this a young lady going there, I was going there. I said, oh, you go, you go. He said, yes, I'm going to this thing too. I said, oh, that's great. He said, this is my fourth time of trying. I thought, what? What? I just thought it was a, you know, hello, Bob Stewart, I'm a conservative. I like to become an MP. Tick, tick, tick. It wasn't like that at all. Um, so once you, for, for some, I'm very delighted to say that they approved me. And then you have to go on a list. Uh, and that list, then you can apply for constituencies. And uh, I applied for constituencies. I went to, uh, for example, Woking. I sort of came about second or third there. Um, upper Highcombe in, in Lincolnshire. I came second with Quasi Quartag. And I was beginning to think this is a waste of time. And actually, I was sitting with my wife in, in Kingston, where we lived in, having a cup of coffee one morning, the phone rang, and it was uh, Tony Power. He said, I'm chairman of the Conservative Association of Beckenham. Just want to say that we've uh, shortlisted you down to the last six people. So I said, oh, that's fantastic, really. Thank you so much. I'm absolutely delighted. Um, you know, I put the phone down. I said to my wife, Do you have any idea where Beckenham is? You know. <laughs> and then, but then I sort of looked at that and said, gosh, gosh, you know, I went over there immediately. The first thing I did was on foot walk the entire boundary of the constituency, all the way around Crystal Palace, all the way around. And then you know, from that being an ex-military type, you know, at least you've got an idea of what the hell you're talking about. You know, you could see the different, you know, you go down to the, you know, down towards uh, Keston, beautiful countryside, beautiful. You know, old church, the old church in Church Lane down in Keston, which is the boundary of my constituency, really upsets me. I always wanted the constituency to extend into Biggin Hill because, you know, my father was an RAF officer and my brother, 
you know, won his RAF scholarship at Biggin Hill. And I'd have been an RAF officer, maybe if I hadn't been colorblind. But my father told me when I was 13 and I discovered I was colorblind, and I said to him, Dad, that means I can't fly. He said, yes, son, it does. I said, oh, God. What about the Navy, Dad? He said, yes, Port and Starboard, Robert, Port and Starboard, red and green. You can't see red and green, you're colorblind. Red and green colorblind. So I said to him, what about the Army, Dad? He said, son, the Army will have anyone. And so I went to Sandhurst, you know, uh, the, the, um, where I applied for Sandhurst and joined the infantry. I always felt that I had to do what the army was about. So it was the infantry. You know, if I'd been in the Air Force, it was flying. If it was in the Navy, it was at sea. Uh, and so I was lucky enough that color blindness didn't prohibit me from, um, you know, joining the army. Although it's still a problem because, you know, the army loves pointing out things. See red-roofed house. Well. You don't see red, you can't see it. it's a red roofed house, you know. Um, the uh, it, it, in the end, uh, I was quite happy. I love the army, um, I didn't really want to leave it, but I felt that I don't want to get bitter about it either. Never for a moment did I ever think I'd be a politician. Heaven forbid, the military always have such you know, my day we considered politicians as some. Sort of, the unholy trinity, you know, the, you, you, politicians, are, they're the sort of people that told you to do things without running risks themselves, you know, all that stuff, you know. Because uh, I remember Jim Callahan in 1970, uh, in front of my platoon, who'd just been through the most ferocious riot in Londonderry, Jim Callahan telling us in the summer of 1970, don't worry, we'll have the army out of Northern Ireland by Christmas. Well, you know, uh, he was, uh, I think his foreign secretary then, or home secretary, I can't remember. But it was uh, sort of, so we didn't really trust him. And it was just after he'd said, have you bashed up your shields to make it look like you've been in a riot? Which we found deeply offensive, I have to say, you know. And our shields were really bashed up, um, you know, and there we are. So that's why, why did I become a politician? In the end, I was persuaded to have a crack in it and then it grew on me. And to be honest, now I consider it to be probably the greatest privilege of my life than anyone that sits down and puts his big fat bottom on the green leather in, in the House of Commons and has forgotten that they're only there by chance, by luck, and by the fact that people have voted for them. Because some people seem to forget that. They seem to think they've got a, got a right to be there. I don't think I've got a right to be there. You know, in many ways, I think I'm seriously lucky to be here. And, uh, you know, remember all the time um, that there are a lot of people that are you can help if you can. So helping people is part of it too. A lot of people you can't help, there's, there's no help, but sometimes an MP's intervention can help put something right. Um, I would say the chances of that happening, you know, two chances in 10, 
but it's worth it, you know. When you get a success, when you get something and you, you get, you help someone in life, it doesn't half give you a fillip. It doesn't half uh, make you think, well, I'm not as big a fraud as I thought I was, you know. What would you say? I'm sorry, it's terribly echoey. Um, what would you say has been your um, the proudest moment, if you like, of where you've actually managed to do that and help somebody? When I got when I got someone whose son had severe problems and there was no hope for him when I managed to get him into a special school where the lady, because she was on her own, didn't have to pay anything and yet she could relax because she was worried because she was growing older and older and she was extremely worried what happened to her son when, when she'd gone. And that's often the case, one of the classic things that MPs have to deal with. I mean, it's not just aging of people who are not looked after, although Bromley's got a, uh, a quite a severe number of the elderly here. A lot of them are relatively well off. That help helps, but some are not. I remember when I was first campaigning, 2010, it was in Bromley Common actually. And uh, I knocked on the door and I said, look, I'm the conservative candidate for Beckenham. She said, oh, oh come on in and have a cup of tea. I thought, well, it's rather nice. So I needed a break, came in and sat in her kitchen. She was on her own. And uh, it was a big house, very big house. And she made me a cup of tea. I said, well, uh, are you living here all on your own? She said, my husband died 10 years ago. I said, oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, we say, you are on your own. She said, yes. So I said to her, well, it's really nice that you've got uh, a dog or a cat. She said, I haven't. I said, well, you've got dog food on the sideboard. She said, makes a passable stew. Okay, now that is, you know, middle-class poverty. It's not so obvious. An old lady there hasn't got any money. She's got a huge house. She really should downsize. But can't, doesn't know how to do it. Doesn't particularly want to do it. That's been her home for all her life. There are people like that living in, in Bromley. And it's that sort of person that you want to try and help. You know, they won't, they won't particularly thank you for saying, suggesting they move out of the house that they've lived in for 50 years. But we've all got parents like that, you know, you know, our parents don't. Well, my, I'm afraid my mother and father, of course, gone because I'm of an age. So it's my, my turn to go, you know, um, my generation's turn to go. But, but the, it's the, 
we're not social workers uh, as members of parliament. That's a diff different matter. But sometimes we can help on something that verges on social work. Because if a member of parliament writes to someone, you know, say a chief executive, it makes an impact. You might at least move, the, it might at least move the complaint further up the entry. Um, government departments do not like complaints from members of parliament. They have civil servants, you know, banks of civil servants for dealing with that, to bat them off, you know, and, uh, and there we are. But uh, so the job of an MP, apart from legislature, which we, we, we have to do in parliament is to try and uh, represent the local area. It's, we're not, we're not like a sort of, um, well, we're not a delegate, we're a representative. The difference between a delegate and a representative is a delegate is meant to do what the people have voted on. So, you know, your union, the union says this, you do that. A representative is meant to use their own approach and decide what is best for the area. Because sometimes you get, how many times do I get emails almost daily? Your constituents demand that you do this. <laughs> okay. Everyone in the constituency expects you to do this. What, it, what they actually mean is, I want you to do this and I'm pretending. And, uh, you know, I go back often and say, well, actually, you're wrong. And by the way, I think I'm a better judge of that, of what everyone in the constituency wants to do, because I get 300 emails a day telling me what all of them saying, this is what your constituency wants you to do. And that's why you've got to be a representative, because you can't just represent, you know, this is a conservative seat. So you, you would think that conservative principles apply. I, I take that, but there's a heck of a lot of other people who vote Labour or Liberal Democrat or some other party, Green maybe, uh, I've got to represent them too. And uh, if I think it's wrong, I, I've got to actually say that and do that. Of course, I dine with a long spoon on a lot of times when I vote. That's what MPs do. They have to, you know, it's always a compromise. It's never easy. It's never, everyone, for example, national insurance at the moment, no one wants national insurance to go up. Don't put national insurance go up. But if we don't put national insurance up, say, I'm just using an example, that's a debt that we're putting on our children, grandchildren. Well, there's already enough debt on the kids, our kids now, because we've, it's not just COVID, but we've overspent my generation have had it easy buying houses. My kids, my own children have a real problem buying a house. You know, in our day or my day, you could even get 110% mortgage. 110%, you didn't even have to put the deposit down. And now you have to sort of put down a third 
you know, sometimes a third of the cost of the property in savings. How the hell can young people do that? You know, and we are a country where we've built into the psyche of the country that home ownership is crucial. Well, it isn't in Germany. Or France. Or France. I mean, and also, there's a difference in so social attitudes in Germany. In Germany, you'd buy a house over three generations. And the generations would live in the same house with the current generation working in, you know, the middle of the house, your grandparents in the basement and the newest lot at the top, and they'd all look after one another and etc. Of course, that's the sort of nuclear family. We, we now, in this country, think we should cart off responsibility for looking after the elderly, <coughs> even our own family, to the state. And um, some, some groups in, in my constituency are extremely good at looking after their elderly. For example, Sikhs, okay? Indians, they consider it to be their real responsibility to look after their, the elderly. Whereas people like myself, my generation, they tend to think, well, put them in a home, go and visit them occasionally. You know, uh, I'm not sure that, well, I, I'm pretty sure that we've got it wrong. Uh, the, uh, and some, some of people in the community have huge respect for the elderly. But how many times have we, uh, you, Sarah, or you, Darren, seen some elderly person insulted on the train or something by youngsters? Awful, absolutely awful. Um, and, uh, you know, it's our, our society's gone wrong there. I wish we could correct that a bit more. Um, and we've got a huge army of people in Beckenham and in Bromley who are unpaid carers. Well, hang on. You see my point, unpaid carers. They're caring for someone in their family. Of course they're unpaid because it's the family, but the expectation is someone would pay for that, not the family. You see what I mean? Uh, I'm not sure how where I'm going on this one, but it does seem to me that we we need to actually put more care. So it's one of the things that worries me about uh, about our society, and, and that's something that matters to me, uh, apart from the military and foreign affairs, is how we look after the the elderly, um, and. Uh, <sighs> I often look when I visit homes and I think, you go in there and it's so depressing. You see all these elderly people in a circle, just sitting there, just existing. I just think, oh, where are their families? Who's looking after them, etc. And I'm just as guilty as anyone else. My mother was in a home you know, at the end of her life. And, uh, you know, so 
I'm blaming myself here, but there's something that's gone wrong in our society that we don't look after the elderly better. And I don't mean monetarily, I mean actually in care terms, you know, in care, care terms. And sometimes you see actually, it's not just groups of people, but strata as a society, those people that have got the less, very little, sometimes out of work or benefits, and still looking after their elderly relatives, and working really hard. And you, your heart goes out and you think, and I think, you know, what nobility, How, what decency, where have I gone wrong? And I always feel rather guilty, to be honest, that I, I, I haven't done more, I didn't do more for my mother because my father died when he was 52 and my mother lasted till 87. Um, and I always feel personally, I'm blaming myself. And I, I reflect that in the way I look at, look at uh, you know, people in, in the constituency. It, it matters, you know, it matters to me. And I just wonder what more we can do to convince people that they, it's not just the government that has responsibility to look after the elderly, of course they do. We live in an NHS society, save our NHS. You know, it's my NHS too. People write to me, my NHS, and they say, it's my NHS too. I've never had private healthcare. When I was badly wounded in the army, my life was saved by the NHS. Okay, the army couldn't deal with it. They put me to the NHS, and by the way, they then sent me to Harley Street on the NHS. So when you're looking at the NHS, people say, we mustn't privatize the NHS. I said, well, my answer to that is, I don't give a damn uh, about privatization. What I want for my constituents is the very best medical care, as long as they don't have to pay for it. So if the NHS are saying, for example, this fellow, this woman or man in Harley Street is the best in the country. And the NHS sends a patient to that person and pays for it. I think, hooray, wonderful, because they're better than the NHS. But the NHS, for example, is hugely good at, at life-saving procedures, heart attacks, that sort of cancer. It's far better, you know, than than a private healthcare. But the top people in the country, we should not actually stop using the top people in the country. Let the NHS pay as long as one of my constituencies, you know, Mrs. Bloggins from you know somewhere in West Wickham, who hasn't got two pennies at all, doesn't pay for it. That suits me, that's the NHS. The NHS should not just be the NHS with NHS outside it. If the NHS, and they do, in fairness they do, if the NHS feels that this person's life could be saved or made substantially better by going to this private arrangement, this private, you know, whether it's an Nuffield <laughs> Trust or anything, so be it, I don't care, uh, you know, and. And, and people just won't answer to me when I say, you know, don't privatise the NHS. This is being slightly political, but it isn't. Labour politicians feel the same. 
Um, don't privatize. I don't, I don't want the NHS privatized, but I do want the NHS to have the ability to, to, to get the very best medical care for people in this country. And it does at the moment. And by the way, while we're on the NHS privatization, only about 8% of the, the NHS is privatized. And the majority of that is cleaning contracts. You know, if you look at the cleaners in hospitals, they're all OCS or something, aren't they? When you go around, when you go around a hospital. Kind of bagged on far too long and I should have shut up. You know, give a politician a platform and he just keeps going. Or she. Well, I've got one more question uh, for you to go on about if you choose to. Yeah. Yeah. Right. If I was a uh, an MP for the Scottish National Party, mm. I came down to Westminster, I met Bob Stewart, and I said, I've never heard of this place called Beckenham. Can you show me around? What places, people, activities might you show them in a little tour of Beckenham? Well, very proud of Kelsey Park, apart from the rats. <laughs> a lot of rats in Kelsey Park. I quite like some of the pubs. I like the pubs, you know, going down into Keston. Um, uh, I think um, Beckenham doesn't have the Churchill Theatre where you saw Bob Neal last week. Um, we, we have a art decor cinema, which really does need to be spruced up. But I think the things that nicest about Beckenham is it's genuinely decent place to live. If you were to take uh, a visitor and take them down to, you know, for example, Langley Park Boys School and show them this immaculate school, all right? Fantastic school, rebuild. And when my own kids went there, by the way, um, the, um, I'm, I'm really proud of that. It's not just Langley Park, there's Langley Girls School beside it, which I think's had a rough deal by comparison with a boys' school. But you, you know, and then we've got new schools to, um, starting up. Why do people want to live in Beckenham? Why do they want to live in Bromley? Firstly, it's a very nice place to live. I lived in Kingston beforehand. The roads are wider here. There's trees. There's a lot of parks. And it's within striking distance of London. Even in all the worst sort of strikes, there's almost always a route into London from, from Bromley. You can get into, get into uh, Victoria in 20 minutes from Bromley South. You can get, you know, to Blackfriars. You can get to, you know, the communication, everyone whinges about trains here. That, well, that's not fair, not everyone, but a constant com complaint is trains going wrong. But my goodness, we're well served by trains uh, and communications by comparison. So we've got good communications. We've got great schools, great state schools. Okay, it's not just schools like um, Ravensbourne, Kelsey, um, and Langley's, uh, Hayes, those sort of schools, the, the secondary schools. But you look at Highfield and 
Clare House and these these other schools, they're you know the primary schools. They're excellent, um, excellent schools. So it's unsurprising that young people want to come and live here. Um, the parks are nice. So if I was to take people around, and then I turn to the Scottish Nationalists, you see, there's one other thing, mate. Here, the weather's a damn sight better than your bloody Scotland. You know, it doesn't peddle with rain the whole time, just only half the time. Um, by the way, I'm half Scottish. So, you know, at the, but, um, so it, it is a surprisingly decent, it was surprising to me when I first came here in 2009. What surprised me most was how lovely it was. And I actually remember coming in all the snow and I came from Kingston where I was campaigning and I brought my children with me and uh, the two girls I had with me. Uh, I've got four, four, I've got six in total. It's, it's indecent, frankly. Um, but two marriages, but two of the girls with me. And we went, we came off the, the road from Croydon and turned towards um, Hayes. We went through that bit of Hayes Common and the snow was everywhere. It was all over the trees. And one of the girls turned to me and said, Daddy, it's Narnia. It's Narnia. And I thought, my God, it does look like Narnia. You know, expected to see a big lion or something there, but you know, but it was, um, it's an extremely nice place to live within striking distance of London and within striking distance of decent countryside. And the decent countryside is very close in. If you go down to, you know, Orpington's got more of it than, than Bromley and Chislehurst and Beckham. But, you know, it's very close. Um, I, I always love going down to the, the hills. I, mean, I just feel it's wonderful. You're driving down towards Keston and you look at some of the, the views and you just think, gosh, we're so lucky to live here. We are privileged to live here. We're privileged to be able to have homes and heating and education and healthcare, you know, and, and we are so lucky to live in this country. And that's the way I feel. I'm lucky to live here. And I'm extremely lucky to be the MP for Beckham.